Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message and God bless. Today we're going to go through Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 through 20. Um, I've got a lot written here. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm going to take my time. I'm not going to try and rush through it. If we get to the end, we get to the end. If we go, you know, two verses, that's fine. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with it, see where the Spirit leads, you know. I had like a big plan and everything um, for exactly what I wanted to hit on my themes, but I really think it would be better if we just let God lead, not my agenda. Amen? Amen. Yeah? All right. <clears throat> So I think I'll start from my, my ESV, my, my physical Bible right here. And it begins in Colossians and it goes, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. You learn this from Epaphras, our much-loved fellow slave. He is a faithful minister of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, because by him, Everything was created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That was a lot. Let's try and get through it. Knowing God. We see that in the context of this verse, Paul introduces himself, his buddy Timothy, the audience, the Colossians, and why he's saying it, because of God. Paul gives them a characteristic greeting. He greets them with grace and peace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he knows that when he greets them and speaks to them and what he's about to teach, it ultimately is rooted in who Jesus is and Jesus' authority. Paul refers to himself as a servant or a slave, an apostle and a brother. And it's important that when we're about to speak on anything, before we even get into the text and everything he's going to say, our attitude when we teach should be one of love. It should begin with prayer, with the understanding that when you share the gospel with someone, you aren't doing so from a place above them, but actually beneath them. Because that's exactly how Jesus served us. He didn't come to us enthroned in righteousness and power and authority. He actually came as a suffering servant. It's also important to note that before he addresses them, he prayed. He didn't visit them. He didn't know the Colossians. He actually never visited the city. But he knew of them and inquired of them through prayer. We should note that before we speak of anything, we should first speak to God. For when we pray, even for a little, we can be thankful for much. Colossae was a relatively small city, and it was located in western Anatolia, now in modern-day Turkey. The Romans would have called it Asia Minor. It's not mentioned elsewhere, save for a passing reference in the book of Philemon. It was a prosperous city at one time, known for its dyes and fabrics. But during the writing of Paul, the city was on the decline. It was actually quite modest by this time. It wasn't a large target, and it didn't have the things that made some of the other cities Paul's rights too special. It didn't have the political power and influence of Rome, and it, it didn't have the strategic trade and military positioning of the Corinth, or have the regional power and influence of Ephesus, you know, all these cities. That's not what qualified them. That, the question is, why would Paul write to these people? I mean, of course, they're the body of Christ, but... From a world perspective, they don't seem all that remarkable. I mean, they sold dyes, they had trade goods, they were located in Asia. It was a well-populated area, nothing too special. Well, Paul answers that in verses 4 through 8. Because he had heard of the faith of Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this, hope in the message of truth, the gospel. The reason he's writing to them is because he heard of their faith. It was hearing of their faith that Paul wrote to them. And we can't forget that the foundation of our salvation is by faith. The only thing that merits our deliverance is faith. The marker of us being a part of the body of Christ and the legacy of the apostles is in our faith. In Paul's introduction to the Colossae, he did not mention their wealth or their position or the decline of their prominence in the empire, because those things weren't what defined the men of Colossae. It was their faith. Many churches and many communities mark themselves by things other than their faith. They mark themselves by their works like charity, or their political persuasions, or the community events, or their style of worship, or their cultural heritage, or even their race. This doesn't define what the church is. For any community could have these things, but it doesn't a church make. A church is made on the basis in where it puts its faith. It is the cornerstone, the foundation that makes the church, not the shingles or the windows or the eloquent words or the beautiful music, though we appreciate these things. I'm super grateful for the worship team. You know, shout out to them, anointing. But those things don't alone make a church. It's not these things that the church rests its shoulder on, its head. It's upon the husband, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus is the starting point for anything else we might aspire to be as Christians. And without faith, we know it's impossible to please God. Faith in Jesus puts us firmly in the communion of the church and in sharing Christ as Lord. That is what empowers us to please God. And this renders the fruit that proves our faith. And this fruit is love for God and for one another. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hope. Hope in who Jesus is as presented by the gospel. Today, Christians have placed our hopes in a lot of things. Economics, political parties, government institutions, relationships, culture wars, media personalities, and countless other lesser idols which occupy our time. We've got plenty of hope in this day and age, but it's just not in the right things. And as a result, we have plenty of disappointment. For the people of Colossae, their hope wasn't to be in the limelight of politics or trade or cultural relevance. That time had passed. Their hope wasn't in an institution or construction of man. It was in the promise laid up for them in heaven by God. Today, we look to our hope laid up in the stock market or in material wealth, and we hear about it through rumors of a few elites and financial analysts, but that's shallow. But we make this decision every time we commit to pleasing the concerns of the world over reflecting God's glory. The truth back then and today is that the church's hope is not and will never be in a worldly creation of man. It is and forever will be in the person of Jesus Christ. It is this theme that will define the rest of Paul's writings. Who is Jesus? How do we define him? What does it mean? How do we apply it? How do we grow in that? In verse 6, it says, That has come to you. It is bearing the fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace and the truth. The truth they were offered was not exclusive to the Colossae. It was actually a big thing. He reminds the Colossians they aren't alone in the work, that they are part of a bigger whole, and that the fruit of faith and hope of Jesus Christ is among others as it is for them. Oftentimes today, we kind of have a small-minded view of the church. And I don't mean like intellectually, I mean in our perspective. We look at the church as our neighbors, our friends, the building down the street. We look at the church as, as some limited institution that we personally experience and it doesn't actually have borders outside of ourselves but this is a small view of the church what paul is reminding them here is to have a large-minded view of the church the church is the mystical body of christ united in faith in jesus and paul will continue to call them to a large-minded view in other aspects as well he will not allow the colossians to remain ignorant of the wider church nor of the higher truths of the faith. The church is growing, and the growth is directed in knowing the grace of God in truth. There's a whole world outside of Colossae, and there's a world of brethren breathing and expanding and sharing the gospel to new peoples, languages, cultures, and generations. And in this regard, the Colossian church is not unique. They have access to the truth made available to the whole world of the elect in Jesus Christ. Just as the church is not limited to a single town, its doctrines rooted in the gospel are bigger than the audience the letter is written to. What am I meaning here? What I'm trying to say is that what Paul's trying to do is get them to expand their perspective, right? The church isn't just unique to these people in their small community. 
the church exists outside of them and their cultural context. You see, the Colossians, the reason Paul's really writing them, and we'll get into this later, if we could take you go through the Bible, but the Colossians are struggling right now because they were pagans. They had this idea that they could syncretize the gospel with their pagan beliefs and kind of adapt it to the Colossi culture. You know, doesn't that sound familiar? We do that all the time today in the church where we syncretize unchristian ideas into the gospel and then wonder why it's watered down. You know, same thing. Same thing happened here in Colossae. It's not new. Also, you have people who were trying on the other side, whereas you had this kind of modern mysticism that was coming in, you know, crystals and idols and, you know, incense and nonsense coming in through the church from the pagan side of things. You also had the legalistic Jews who were coming in and Judaizing the church and getting them to focus away from the gospel of Christ and towards the law as the form of their salvation. That first they would have to be Jews and then they could become Christians and that would be the fulfillment of the covenant. But no, what Paul is always going to say is that Christ alone is the fulfillment of our covenant and faith in him saves us, not in obedience to the law. For the law can only condemn us. You might have recognized that from last week, Pastor Curtis's sermon there, you know, shout out to Pastor Curtis. And, you know, but that theme, he has to keep repeating this to different audiences because it's obvious the devil likes to use the same strategies and tactics over and over again to confuse the church. Because if he could throw one church into confusion and make it look like the body isn't ordered, he could question the headship of the church. Is Christ really head if the body is scattered everywhere, not really doing anything? It seems kind of directionless. They don't have any intellectual framework to build a consistent idea. Right? Now truth is up for debate. Now all of it's being watered down and thrown away for the sake of cultural convenience, either to fit into one group of the Judaizers or to fit into another group of the pagans. But what Paul says is you're both wrong. The truth is embodied not in your culture, but in Christ, a person. And that's what he's going to keep doing, right? And when I talk about having a high-minded view of the church and its doctrines, we need to step out of our comfort zone here because there are going to be times in your life where your church, right, the building you're in, doesn't have the be-all, end-all say in truth, which I know is kind of ironic because I'm sitting up here teaching about truth. But look, the Bible wasn't written by a bunch of 21st century Americans, Okay, they didn't have the iPhone. They didn't have social media. They didn't have memes the way we do. They had hieroglyphics, I guess, but they didn't have memes. You know, they didn't have inside jokes the same way we do. They didn't have football teams and massive stadiums the same way we do in the sense that they had the Colosseum. You know, there are parallels and differences, though, and we can't just read into the Bible 21st century American evangelicism as, as the way of things. You just can't. Um, you got to keep in mind that it was written by people of the time they were in and you're going to actually have to get out of some of the the predispositions and presuppositions you have about the scriptures if you want to understand them more fully and that's what paul is calling these people to he's telling them get out of your pagan comfort zone of your cultural context and step into the truth and that's kind of the challenge he's offering and that's why he's praying for them right when we approach our gospel and bring ourselves to the text of scriptures, we got to confront it knowing that the themes and ideas expressed are bigger than the audience they are being expressed to. This works in two ways. In one sense, we can't divorce the truth from its context. The scriptures have a multitude of authors, several languages, and thousands of years of time, and countless individuals that shape God's narrative of truth in such a way that each book, chapter, and verse is unique and meaningful in the time they were written. Right? So context matters. Whether it was a Hebrew writing it or a Greek, does matter. 
whether it was the Apostle Paul living in you know, ancient Rome or the prophet Daniel being in captivity in Babylon matters because the language changes and the cultural context and the structure of the government changes and so the truths espoused can be better understood in that lens. On the other hand, the Bible is also true in that it's not just context. For it does not help us to know about the scriptures if we don't apply the scriptures to our own lives. So this is the other way scriptures are true. On the other hand, we can't thrust ourselves and read into the text through the forced lens of our time and culture and perspective without being informed beyond those things. In other words, the scriptures are true in such a way that they can be exposed and experienced both intimately within a person's heart in our own time, right now experienced, and intellectually within a person's mind at the same time. In other words, you can understand about Christians in the past and also apply what they knew to what we know today, right? You don't have to just live your life as though the church only exists in these four walls. It's actually mystical. It's existed a thousand years before you, and it'll probably exist a thousand years after you until the Lord comes back, and we're a part of that story. And so don't be afraid of confronting these ideas and these doctrines, and don't limit yourself or box yourself in either to just an intellectual side where you want to be trapped in the past or an experiential side where you don't want to explore ideas outside of it right? It's both. You need to experience the scriptures and apply them to your life, and you need to understand them in your head and what it actually means so you can properly apply them. You can't have one without the other. This requires us to widen our view and grow, not only in our experience of God, but also our knowledge and truth of God. It's going to challenge us to look beyond ourselves for context and within ourselves for application. Only with these working together hand in hand can we experience the fullness of spiritual formation. Verse 7, <clears throat> you learn this from Apophras, our much-loved fellow slave. He is a faithful minister of the Messiah on your behalf, and he has told us about your love of the Spirit. You know what characterizes them? It was love. He reminds them that Apophras, he, he was a missionary. He went back and he actually told Paul about everything that was going down, which is why Paul had to write this letter, so he kind of sold them out, but low-key, it was good for them, you know? Sometimes that's the case. You got to hear something about something and then address it. And that was good, right? Because Paul's doing it in love. And he makes sure to let them know, hey, Apophras said good things because he's going to have to do that. Paul does this a lot. And it's something that I need to work on where he introduces a letter and a correction by saying, look, we love you. We've heard all the good things you're doing. But here's where you're wrong. And this actually empowers him because he reminds them that the place he's coming from is not one of a critical legalism where he hates the people. He's actually just trying to encourage them to reach their full potential in Christ. Apophros is characterized as a slave, a doulos, a servant. It's a bond slave, okay? It's not a popular word these days, but that's what it is. And when you serve in the ministry, you don't really belong to yourself anymore. Amen. You belong to Jesus Christ. And, you know, that's something I struggle with, too, because I'll tell you what, when I'm on the construction site or when I'm dealing with other people, low-key Jesus kind of gets put to the side and construction Billy comes out and he wants to lord it over people, you know, and run things his way. It ain't right. That's not how it works. Actually, I should be belonging to Christ all the time because I'm not just called to minister inside the four walls of this building, but to the entire world at all times through the Great Commission, right? So when I fall short of that and I'm not living in obedience, I'm not really actually living up to my role as a servant of Christ, am I? I'm in rebellion to him. And what I'm encouraging you to do is, again, look at it through the context of the scriptures that our lives need to be characterized by love when we share the truth in every context, not just the one where we're comfortable in our own church building. When we share the truth, when we grow in this knowledge, we experience an expansion of faith, hope, and love. That triad, you've heard those before. It's, you know, Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Well, all of them kind of feed into each other. 
you can rest assured anything that doesn't demonstrate these three characteristics isn't of God or the Spirit. Acquiring knowledge of God should not serve to make us haughty or elitist or proud or self-loving or narcissistic or disinterested to our fellow men. It should render in us a palpable, inescapable love, especially for our fellow Christians. I'll be guilty of this. I often say that I have more patience for pagans than I do for Christians. I, you know, I can't stand church people. And I, I mean that with all the love in my heart towards all of you in here. Obviously not you church people, but everybody else, right? So I can't stand like people who, who are in the church and act a certain way. You know what I'm talking about? Like where everything gets over-spiritualized and all that nonsense. And so, because everything's being hidden behind Christian politeness or Christianese, you can't actually address issues out in the open and be brutal about it. Like, I hate that, you know, personally. And it makes me uncomfortable and it builds up in resentment. But the truth is that before it gets to that point, I should really just address it in love because you can be honest and not be hateful, right? I mean, I'm not saying I live it out perfectly, but this is what the Bible says. And if the Bible disagrees with my personal like guts and how I operate, well, the Bible's right and I'm wrong, right. you know? Like, that's the thing is I'm not coming before you guys simply from a place of Billy knows the scripture so well, he can just educate all of us. No, it's like, I preach this to myself first, which is why I feel miserable. Uh, because as I look through the text and I see how it applies to me, I realize that that elitism, that narcissism, that, that feeling of superiority to people characterized a lot of my life and still does at times. But that's not what should define this teaching. That's not what should define how we share the gospel. What should actually define how we share is are you coming to them as a servant and encouraging them with love, not your own superiority? And this is how we actually access the knowledge of God, not just mentally, but in our experience and application to our lives, right? Like it does literally nothing to know about a good meal and then be starving because you don't know how to eat and process the food, right? It does nothing to be thirsty and know about water in theory, but in practice never drink. Okay, I know some people think Diet Coke is, you know, basically a supplement for water. Doesn't count. In the same way, you can't just fill up your theological spirit man with subpar Diet Coke. No, you need to go to the fountain of life. You can't just go for airy, fairy things that you're already comfortable with or already know or taste sweet to you. You might actually have to taste the fullness of a fresh drink of truth. Right? Verses 9 through 11. Excuse me. <coughs> For this reason, also, since the day we heard of this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing the fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power and according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Okay, it's a few things to break down. Let's start with verse nine. For this reason, we also have not stopped praying for you. Again, two prayers. We've already gotten to two prayers here, guys. When Paul's addressing them, he starts out with one prayer and then he goes right to two because guess what? You have to be prayed up before you address someone with love. It does nothing to address someone and then not be praying for them. It's very hard to sound loving when you're not praying for someone, right? Prayer is getting God's perspective on an issue. And once you've consulted God's perspective, it'll result in humility and grace and love and intercession for a person rather than just judging them. Paul's prayers, by the way, were not just to restore them financially or to make them relevant to the culture, to give them anything the Roman world would deem useful. It was actually to fill them with the knowledge of God's will and wisdom and spiritual understanding. 
Of all the things he could have prayed for the city on the decline, he could have prayed for numbers or tithes or the increase in notoriety or political influence. He didn't pray for those things. He prayed for an increased wisdom and knowledge of God so they could apply it, their spiritual understanding. You know, a lot of times today I hear prayers for increase in a lot of different conceivable ways of life. I hear especially charismatic Pentecostals, holla holla, go out and pray for money or charisma or gifts or glory or blessing or honor and influence. But very rarely have I actually heard someone pray God's will and not their own explicitly. And that sets the groundwork for the next of uh, the next verse in verse 10. For it says, <clears throat> walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing in fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Why do we need to apply this spiritual knowledge and increase in it? Because it helps us walk worthily. We grow in the knowledge of God's will so we might walk in a worthy way that pleases him. This demonstrates the nature of faith in our walk, for it inevitably produces fruit and every good work while increasing the knowledge of God. You can't show me a mature fruit-producing Christian who is not hungering after and increasing in a knowledge of God. Nobody climaxes or plateaus or peaks in this. God is bigger than your mind, so you'll never run out of material. You know, that's the truth. You're not going to fit the infinite in your head. The Christian's job isn't to try and fit all the heavens in his head. It's actually to put his head into the heavens. You're supposed to put your head in the clouds, guys, not try to fit all the universe cosmos into your head you need to experience god and appreciate him the way you might appreciate a running stream you're never in the same position in the stream at the same time there's always a continual flow going through right you should never get tired of that sensation you don't plateau in these things you don't ever reach an end point fully while you're here on earth it's a continual action so when you're telling me you know let's say i don't know you know a know-it-all at church you know, someone who really knows the scriptures and is really proud of their knowledge or whatever. You know, I don't know anybody like that. You know, it's kind of a, you know, kind of show off about it, you know. You know, I don't know anybody like that. <laughs> but if you guys do, let me know. Um, if that person's a know-it-all, they really don't know about who God is. They don't know anything about the Lord because if they did know anything about God, truly, they wouldn't think they actually know it all. For to know God as his elect do is to desire after him the way a bride does for her husband. Ladies, you might know your husband really well, but I guarantee you still want his attention and his affections and you want to keep growing in intimacy with him. Okay? Anybody knows that the key to a healthy relationship in marriage is that you don't let it stagnate. You don't get tired of pursuing. As a man, you never want to stop pursuing your woman. Ever. That's the goal is to always make her feel pursued because even if she knows intellectually you love her, that's not the same as actually feeling that love, right? The idea is to set them in such a way that they always feel as though you're constantly going after them. You're always endeavoring. The chase never really ends because you're always moving forward and being intentional with them. Once you've left, left intentionality, the race, uh, relationship is over. Once you've lost trying to level with them, trying to be intimate with them, your relationship is dead stagnates. Same thing with God. Once we've stopped and felt like we could just end the walk, well, God's going to keep on moving. You know, that's why it's called a Christian walk. It's continual, not the Christian step, you know, then just, and it's continuous exposure to God. It's a continuous practice of being intimate with him. A Christian who knows the Lord should want God the way a thirsting deer pants for the water. 
The way a starving man hungers for bread? The way a parched land pleads for rain? Or a thirsty traveler needs a wellspring? It's not a talent to the person. That hunger and desire is a gift from God, which actively cultivates the fruit of the Spirit for every Christian. Some might say what I'm describing here, this desire for knowledge of God, is only for teachers, but they're wrong. See, teachers express the knowledge and train others, and this is really reserved for people in the pastoral teaching position. It's called for the men who are there to minister to God's church. Not many of us are to be teachers, but all among us are to be students. So you don't have to be a teacher to want to learn. That's the thing people have messed up right now. They expect some elitist with a college degree or somebody who really knows the scriptures to come and tell them what to believe, but they themselves never jump into the scriptures and search for it. You see, it's not just for teachers to seek and to find. That's actually for all Christians in the entire body because we're all the bride. We're all supposed to be clinging to our husband, Jesus, wanting to be close to him, wanting to be intimate with him, wanting to spend time with him. It's not just for some elite. Because Jesus didn't just die for the elite, for the people who knew it all. If he had done that, he could have just kept the Pharisees because they knew everything about the law. They knew everything about the scriptures. They were the guys. They were righteous. They sat in the seat of Moses, all this nonsense. But what Jesus says is you actually have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And at the same time, your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, how can you hunger and thirst for something and then exceed in it? Well, the only thing that could exceed that righteousness is Jesus, who's perfect. So we actually should be hungering and thirsting after Jesus, who satiates our need for righteousness and because he's perfect and we're not, we're always having to go back to him for seconds. Jesus is the great buffet, and we're just a bunch of hungry people at Golden Corral, okay? Like, I don't know how, I, I know that's kind of funny, but that's like literally how I see it. It's like Jesus is this big running water, this water fountain, and we're running through it, and we can never get enough. Because even though he satisfies our every thirst, we never want to pull away from the fountain. I never want to get away from that chocolate fondue fountain at Golden Corral, you know, with the strawberries, you dip it in and everything. It's tremendous. I never want to stop that. Jesus is even sweeter. When I get into the scriptures, when I'm confronted with who Jesus is, I become even more curious. And I realize I, every time I look at the scriptures and what the church fathers wrote and what the other pastors in my life have written and what the commentaries say, I'm always like, wow, I have more questions I need answered. Don't ever get to the point where you stop questioning and wanting to be with Jesus. That's how you know you're having a healthy, cultivated spirit. It's not just for teachers. It's for everybody. It's for students. We're all disciples, right? And Jesus is a rabbi. He's a good teacher. He's God, right? We're to be pursuing him and learning from him continuously. Don't just get comfortable and stagnate in your spirituality. Constantly be pursuing God, not only in how you experience him, say, during worship or while you're praying, but also in how, what you know about him and his character and his role. And Paul's going to actually use the rest of these verses to expand it. He does an entire poem in the centrality of Christ, verses 15 to 20, but we're not there yet. So verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Knowledge is power. And as we grow in the knowledge of God according to his will and by his might for all endurance and patience with joy, we are equipped accordingly. When the Bible mentions endurance, it means suffering. This is not a life of ease we are being promised here. It's not a life of material comfort, but it is a life of joy. And it's found in the reaffirming knowledge and hope of God. That's our strength, that we know God is strong. This is our endurance, that Christ could endure his cross. This is our patience, that Jesus bore every sin. And this is our joy, that he did rise again. These are the results of the gospel. For God to redeem his sinful creation to glory. 
that even in suffering evil, we by the knowledge of God's will and walking in accordance with it might have patience and joy where once there was only restless misery. God has made us new in the knowledge of his son and having this knowledge empowers us by faith to walk a dark path with God's light to guide us. The narrow way is well lit by God's truth. The knowledge of that truth sets us up for how we're to talk and walk and the results of the walk. It all ties together. You need to know about Jesus to be saved by Jesus. Fair enough? Okay? It's not going to do you any good to say I'm saved and then not know who saved you or how you were saved or what about. So we actually do have to grow in a knowledge of Christ because part of being saved is being part of the Great Commission, which tells us to go make disciples of all the nations. And how are you going to make disciples and teach the other nations and bring them into Jesus if you yourself don't know Jesus? Amen. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I know a lot of people who say, you know, I don't really need all that theology stuff. I don't really need all that, that, that high-minded stuff. That's, that's for the experts. That's for people with degrees and glasses and, and nerdy accents. You know what I mean? Let me tell you something. When you introduce who Jesus is and you say, someone asks you, hey, who Jesus is, how are you going to answer him? Are you going to say he's my savior? He's the son of God, Right? He's the wonderful counselor. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the word made flesh, the logos, all that. Guess what? You just did theology. You just endeavored in explaining and studying God, right? The things that you take for granted, the presuppositions you approach the scriptures with are actually part of theology because the Bible is a theological book, right? It's about how we understand God revealing himself to his people. And Jesus is the full embodiment of that in the flesh, which means that to learn more about him, means that we can embody him and restore the image in us, which helps us encourage others to also restore to that image. Right? It's all coming together. And then Paul gives thanks in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul attributes the gifts of knowledge and of faith and of hope and of love and strength and endurance to a person of the Trinity, the Father. The Father initiates salvation from its plan to times past. Notice that God's qualification is what begins our journey to the cross. Knowledge and wisdom and understanding and application comes after God qualifies you, not a moment before. See, here's the thing. You don't get to the cross by knowing everything about Jesus, right? Rather, you get to the cross and then you begin to know him. So this is how we aren't saved by works, but rather by faith. Jesus already did all the full works of righteousness on the cross. And Jesus is already the word made flesh. He's all the knowledge. Everything is held into him. It's going to say that later, actually. And Jesus is already the embodiment of all truth. So that's already been done. All that's you. You know, the standard is extremely low for you. You just have to answer the call. It's the Father who qualified you. Not your education, not your class, not your race, not your position culturally, not how relevant you are, not how many retweets you get, you know, not how many likes you get on Facebook. I'd be posting some fire Facebook posts, but... Not a single one of them actually qualifies me to go to heaven. I'm sorry. You know, I, I appreciate your likes and shares. You know, follow me, Bill Crawford. But the truth is, truth is, as banging and high quality as my content is, it's really not mine. I'm just parroting. If anything's in it, it's true. I'm just parroting something God already came up with, right? Because he is the truth and the way and the life. So really, we're all just plagiarizing God whenever we say anything that's true. Jesus... Jesus qualified us in spite of our ignorance and our moral failings and our human weakness. When someone asks you who you are to speak or to teach or to act, you can only answer them that you thank God for this qualification because it's his qualification. 
And I think you should also notice the word inheritance there. The inheritance is not a wage. It's not an entitlement. How do you get an inheritance? Does anybody know? Who said that? Someone kicks it? Someone... Somebody dies. That's right. You know, isn't it interesting that the whole key, she's right though. The whole key to the Christian faith is somebody died. Jesus died for us and we inherited the kingdom of heaven. And notice when you inherit something, it's not based on something you did. You don't get to pick yourself into the will. They write you into it. God wrote you into his will, into his kingdom from the foundations of the earth. He picked you. He sets you apart. He, you were the sheep that was lost. You're responsible for getting lost, but Jesus is the one who's responsible for finding you. Congratulations, that's salvation. That's why it's faith alone and not works. When you come back to the flock and you begin conforming to the herd, it's because Jesus brought you there. Right? You don't inherit the wage. And inheritance isn't something you're due right? It's actually a matter of your status or your relationship. Like, I did, my mom's awesome. I just want to stop right there and say, yeah. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> I, I know as great as I am, I didn't choose mom. She chose to have me, right? Now, mama, I love you. But the thing is, as much as you love me, if I was some bum off the street, you wouldn't put up with my crap, Amen. right? <laughs> Same thing with God. See, see, the thing is, the thing is, God chose you and he knew about all your nonsense, right? And when we inherit grace, we need to understand that it's really all in God's choice to deal with our nonsense. It's God's choice to deal with our sin, not because of something I did that earned it. What you earned was death. What you've earned by being sinful Lying, cheating, stealing, coveting. Been guilty of all that. Uh, you know, all these things, hate, anger, wrath, lust. Lord knows I've done all those things, you know. I earned death. That was my wage. That's what I earned. That's what I deserve. But my inheritance in Christ's death is grace and the resurrection and new life. I didn't choose to be in God's will. Rather, he chose to put me into his, which is why when we pray, we say not my will, but thy will be done. Because if it was my will, I wouldn't be living righteously because I want to sin. That's my innate inherited nature from Adam. But what I've inherited in Christ, that's obedience and submission to the word of God. So he can conform me away from the image of Adam and back towards that perfect image of his son, Jesus. The salvation and relationship, they aren't a test to get right and pass. It's not a task or a ritual that's performed to get favor from God and that hope brings you closer. Salvation through Jesus Christ comes from unmerited favor of the Lord upon an unworthy sinner who needed a savior. And this verse is a call to humility because the saints, whether you're gifted in one way or another, we're all equally worthless without God. So that's what we share. That's what binds us, okay? Look, my boy Kevin is, is great with a firearm. He's got that gift, okay? Sabrina sings like an angel, okay? Nancy is gifted on the piano. Amanda gives great hugs, okay? I'm not even gonna lie. My mom has the patience of a saint. Miss Tanya, 
God, there's just wor not words to describe how great you are, Miss Tanya. I love you. You're just the best. She's always encouraging me. Ellie and Riley, they're beasts. I love to see them come to church. You know, you know, they're my buddies. When they're not grumpy, when they're not being angsty and teen, you know, angsty teens, you know. I love to see them all. Every person here has something they contribute. But the thing that actually qualifies us isn't all these lovely things we have. It's actually the lovely person we come to worship. So that's my thing. That's what I believe Paul is getting at here. It's not in your works, right? It's in Jesus's work. 13 to 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his blood son and whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The end of this recognition is redemption and forgiveness of sins. And now it's going to hit on Jesus' identity as king. Because that word transferred can also be translated conveyed. And it's a military term so that when one kingdom or empire would go and take over another kingdom or empire, they would take all the people and bring them into their, their territory. You know. Well, when you were in the kingdom of darkness enslaved to sin, what Jesus did on the cross is he basically crushed Satan's head, stepped over his bleeding corpse, took you from the kingdom of darkness, and carried you over his shoulder back to his territory. He was caveman in it. He, you know, you want to lose, use a more gentle term, he was taking his bride, picking her up, and walking her gently back into the home where he, she belongs. That's what Jesus did. He owns you. You know, the same way that we, you know, you ladies, you take the last name of your husband because now you're part of the same flesh. You guys own each other, you know? We are his and he is ours. And that is what's meant to be conveyed in the sacrament of marriage, which is his own conversation. But that's just a picture here that we're supposed to have. In this case, Jesus' authority as king is being demonstrated because he alone had the authority and the might and the power to free us from our sinful nature and bring us into the light. And then it goes and talks about how, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 15 and 16, who Jesus is, and this is the fun part. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, because by him everything was created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The image of the invisible God. So I did some Greek study. Okay, not to brag, but I found some words online. So the word there for image, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The word there in Greek is icon, E-I-K-O-N. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, you can correct me later in the comments on whenever this is posted. The first ideas expressed by this word is likeness, and it's used to demonstrate the same way a coin bears the image of, say, I don't know, Caesar, the king. Because that's how it was back in the day. You would mint a coin and have, you know, the king's head on it. So you'd be like, yeah, this is legal tender. It bears his authority, you know. Glad I can buy my bread, thank you, Caesar, for minting the coins. Thank you. Well, Jesus bears the authority to mint his image on you. And in the currency, he uses his blood. That's the meanness, right? It's to denote Jesus' authority over you. It's a symbol of power. You could spin the currency knowing it was recognized by the authorities as legal tender. God saw fit to have his currency of covenant bloodshed marked in the image of Christ. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, and he bears the image of God's full authority and recognition for any person who uses his blood to pay their debt of sin. Jesus' image is the image of the Father's word. In this sense, Christ bears the Father's image. The second meaning is manifestation. That is, God's nature is fully revealed in Jesus. Jesus isn't just similar to the Father. That would be homoioma, 
I'm going to try and pronounce it, homoioma, H-O-M-O-I-O-M-A. Paul used a stronger, more tangible word, icon, to prove Jesus was God. He was the genuine article, not only similar to, but completely and fully resembling the Father in his nature as ruler and bearing full authority. The next part is defining Jesus as firstborn. That word is protokos. It also has two meanings, a priority in time and supremacy in rank. Paul again uses both ideas and meanings into how he defines Jesus in his role. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he's before all creation. But he's also the firstborn in the sense that, you know, when you're born to the king, you're the prince. That means you've inherited the king's estate, right? You know, it wasn't uncommon for sons, like you'll see in the Roman Empire, sons would go and act in the name of the emperor, you know, and they would kind of, actually what they would end up doing is the Roman emperors would pick their successors and then start using them as lesser emperors during the Tetrarchy, where there were four emperors and you would have two, uh, two senior emperors and two junior emperors and they would end up picking them. Or they would adopt the kid, you know, one of their close family members that they thought was half competent, not a complete degenerate, and they would make them the leader of the empire, you know. You'd pick your successor and they would bear your full authority. The same way, Jesus, as a manifestation of God, the protocos, the firstborn, bears the full authority of God's kingdom, the same way a prince bears the authority of the king. Jesus is the prince of peace, after all. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. He is the son of the king. So, gives him some say, doesn't it? It's to convey his full authority. Jesus pardoned and forgave sinners, judged the wicked, works miracles, and teaches in the Father's name the same way a prince will go about doing the king's will. So, to Jesus, defers and submits to God the Father's will. It also reaffirms his person, and that rather than drawing a distinction between Jesus and the Father, it compares them as being equal in majesty and co-equal in glory. That's from the Council of Nicaea. What the Father does, the Son does, and what the Son has done, the Father has ordained. In other words... Jesus could only do what the Father allowed him to do, and the Father, whenever he acted on through Jesus, Jesus was doing the Father's will, right? Because they were in perfect submission and in alignment with each other. Because it's one God and three persons. This is really important because you're going to have people later who try to use this idea to separate Jesus as a creation rather than a creator, right? They actually try to make him a exalted human being it's called arianism and it basically just says well jesus is a perfect human and he's similar to god but he's not god paul right here the language he's using is very specific because he's trying to tell you jesus is god okay and that's why he's using these specific words and not just using comparative language right he's like directly pushing the idea that jesus is fully god he actually uses the word fullness later and then he references something that's going to sound like John 1.1, 1, 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Okay, Jesus is the firstborn again in the sense that through him all things were created. Okay, now here's a little bit of a logical puzzle, okay? Jesus is firstborn in the sense that he's before all creation, but not in the sense that there was a time where he was not. So, you know, time was implemented by God at creation in the beginning. But... If the beginning was created through Jesus, that would mean that Jesus existed before the beginning, which means that Jesus always existed, right? Now, the reason I go through this is because later what you're going to see is a tendency for people to, and this exists today, people who say that Jesus isn't God and that he didn't always eternally exist. There was a huge division for Christianity. And you had Gnostics even earlier than that trying to take away from Jesus' personhood and his rightful place as God. So when we approach, again, 
I just told you how important it is to grow in knowledge, and this is why. Because when you try to undermine the truth of who Jesus is, you undermine the power of the gospel, which undermines salvation. If we don't understand these things, we start to question who Jesus is. And once we've questioned who Jesus is, we can question his work on the cross. And if we question his work on the cross and its saving power, then where's our hope? If Jesus doesn't have the authority to forgive sins because he's not God, what am I doing pleading the blood? It makes no sense. If the currency isn't good because it's approved by the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords, it's just monopoly money. In America today, we've got a problem with inflation because it's built on the promise of the government. Okay? And they just print a lot of it, and so the promise becomes a lot less valuable when there's a lot more promises. You ever notice that when someone has a lot of promises and then doesn't fulfill any of them? People don't really take their word. You know, them at their word. They aren't really worth their salt. Their word isn't good as gold, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is the same idea. When you water down the currency of who Jesus is, the genuine article, the value of his work becomes less valuable. You know? He's pure gold. The gospel is pure gold. It's actually more important than pure gold. It's more valuable. And we can't water it down by watering down who Jesus is. Because it was through him that things were created. It was through him that creation was set up. And it was actually for him that creation was set up. All the dominions and powers and authorities of the earth are actually submitted under Jesus' feet. This is what it meant when the prophet said he would rule with a rod of iron. You know, he bears the full authority of God. He was before all things and in him all things are held together. Jesus is the word, the logos. The logos is Greek and it means the conversation. It can also mean to put everything into order. And icon is often used as a parallel to logos, okay? That's what Philo the Jew of Alexandria would say. You've got to understand that Jesus is the only way we can make heads or tails of anything in this world. Everything's tied into him and his person. We cannot know the Father apart from Jesus. When God appears in the Old Testament, it's actually, you'll hear it, the angel of the Lord. Whenever he appears bodily, that is Jesus. Jesus, it's called the Christophany. Jesus is the key to revealing God's will on earth because he was the word made flesh, the logos, the order, the conversation, the debate. Again, this proves Jesus' authority because how can you have a conversation by yourself? Like, it's not genuine, it's just thoughts. But Jesus actually exists as a person in that he was able to talk to God the Father, intercede with God the Father, and through him create all of creation, right? That's what it means to be the logos, to be the universal order by which all things are put into arrangement. That's why Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Because no matter how you arrange those letters in the entire alphabet, you'll get different things of reality, right? You can spell anything. Well, just in the same way, you can't spell anything without Jesus. You can't make heads or tails of anything, any direction, any standard without Jesus of Nazareth. You have no means of trusting anybody. And so it is in this that we understand the whole truth of the gospel, not just, not just the truth of being Christians, which is fundamental truth. This is the most important one, but also everything else we take for granted. Like, how do I know I exist? Well, you don't. It has to be revealed to you by God in Jesus. How do you know anything to be true? Well, because we have the truth embodied in flesh in a way we can understand it in Jesus. That was the problem with the Pharisees is they wanted to think of God as some intellectual thing that had to be understood with the proper amount of education. But actually, Jesus can be understood on his own terms as a human being. That's why he was made flesh. Don't let elitism separate you from who God is. Don't let it water down the person of God. Jesus was a man. He existed in a way we could understand him. He bore all of our suffering and iniquities in him. And it wasn't unpersonal. It was very personal to him. Because if it wasn't personal, 
we would have no way to relate to him. If we couldn't relate to him, we couldn't understand him. If we couldn't understand him, we couldn't appreciate the work of the cross. <clears throat> We're almost done here, guys. Two more verses. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This describes Christ's role as it relates to us. So the first, you know, the four verses were kind of just describing, okay, everybody everywhere, Gentile, Jew, atheist, Christian, whatever you want to say you are, you're actually, all your entire truth is built on the presupposition that God exists, okay? You wouldn't have any heads or tails or be able to name anything as true without that, right? This part tells you what Jesus is specifically to us. He's the head. Think of it as like the head of a river, right? He's the head in that everything else comes before him. He's the preeminent, right? He comes before. So when you go to a river's origin, everything else from that river flows, right? We stand as the church in the river of God's work in the sun, and it continually throws past us as revealed in Jesus. He's important to the people of God. We can't drink from the water of life if we don't have its source, and the source of life is Jesus because he was the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This word fullness is pleroma in Greek. It means totality. It means that Jesus is fully God in his nature and is not a moment of gray, but of clear asserted truth, resplendent in a robe of white. Who Jesus is and what we know of him is certain and true, and it is not a matter of debate what is being attributed to him here. All of God's attributes, his holiness, his personality, his authority, his power, his might, his glory, his mercy, and his truth, all of it's in Jesus. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Whether you believe that's true or not, irrelevant. This is what the text is saying. So don't say you're a biblical-based Christian if you don't believe Jesus is the fullness of the Father. Right? He is the full dwelling, has all the attributes, authority, and power of God. If you don't understand that, we can't understand salvation. Through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why does all this matter? Because... Is only understanding who Jesus is that we can have peace with God through his blood. We cannot have a proper appreciation for God without knowing him. And this is why Paul's prayer is that we would increase in the knowledge of God so that we would apply it to our lives and work it fully. And the way that we apply this, the way that we grow in it, the way that we expand our faith and our perspective as Christians by understanding and perceiving God in exactly all of who he is. Not all at once. It'll take time to understand that. It'll take study, all right? But to understand the reality, the fundamental truth. There's something bigger than me here. God's truth and righteousness and perfect standard. These are things we can understand at a first glance, but what we're being invited to do here is go deeper into it. It's the difference between, you know, going to the moon and then exploring the rest of the cosmos. If you were immortal and had all of eternity to explore the rest of all the universe, it still wouldn't be enough time, right, compared to Jesus. You would more fully explore all of creation and all the heavens than you could explore Jesus. Therefore, never stop pursuing him. It's an endless quest to glory. The question you have to ask yourself is, do you know Jesus and do you want more? You got to be careful you got to consider these things. Because once you drink of the cup of grace, once you drink from Christ and eat at his table, you'll never be satisfied outside of his presence. It's not an action to take lightly. It's not something to be done without care. 
It's a special calling to crave God. And it's a continual walk to please him. And an always present hunger to have more of him. But of all the things to be hungry and thirst for, there's no more pleasant or sweet a hunger or desire than the hunger and desire for God. To have Jesus, he must have you. We need to believe, repent, cling to his cross, and be saved. And from there, we can increase our knowledge of him. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month, we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.